Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. You guys know that, apparently. That's cool. It is. I totally resonate with that sense of it feels like such a long time. It makes me think of how deep uh, my soul is enmeshed with your own in this community and the rhythm that we have, and then we're apart for just a week, and it's like, wow, it's really good to be back with you. So I'm glad. I'm going to pray for us to start this morning because today's a real tricky passage. Uh, we're in a parable, and parables are very odd things. And so hopefully uh, you've been able to think about that ahead of time if you did see that Facebook announcement where I said we'll be in chapter 4 of Mark. But this is, uh, it's really challenging. Parables challenge us in a different way. So I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray that God would help me and help you and that we could really do what this song just said. We could hear what God would speak to us, that we would listen. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful that we were able to make it here, you know, to be physically present in this room, and, and we're thankful to you for that. We're also thankful for our life uh, in the basic sense of we have beating hearts and our blinking eyes, and so we're alive and we're here, and that's because of you. And yet as we read the scriptures and we study together your word, as we receive your word, uh, we are invited to understand life in a much different way than just a beating heart or blinking eyes. You reveal to us something much more complex, much deeper and richer. And as I try to preach this text today, I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would help everybody in this room be able to hear you, to hear what you would be teaching us about yourself and about us through these parables. We love you. And we trust you, and boy, are we thankful for your word that we, can, that we can engage with together as a community. Amen. Okay, overwhelmed we stand in awe. Our words fall short of who you are. That was the, uh, that first song that we sang. There's something to that you can kind of meditate on, isn't there? You know, we're overwhelmed. You look at God, we stand in awe. And we recognize right up front that the language that we use is going to fall short. It doesn't, it doesn't capture fully uh, what, what we want to believe, what we want to know, what we see about God. Overwhelmed, we stand in awe. Words fall short of who you are. You wonder, why did Jesus not come and just explain the truth in a real crystal clear way that everybody could easily grasp in a simple way. You ever wonder that? If you're ever reading through the scriptures, you're looking at Jesus or the Bible passages, and you're like, man, what's going on here? Couldn't he have simmered this down for me, made it a little bit clearer? He certainly gives some clarity. We have these moments in the story where things really impact us and seem to shed a lot of light on our life, but then there's these other moments that are deeply confusing. And then he teaches us about the kingdom of God in parables. He uses parables to talk about them, these stories that invert and then hide their meaning. What would he do that for? Why would Jesus... If, if of all the chosen, of all the options he has to preach the kingdom of God, we'll learn today that he does this almost exclusively by preaching to people in parables. That's really interesting. I think he's trying to use limited, faulty communications. So the way we communicate, he has to use our words. 
And human language is faulty. Our words fall short. Human language is limited, and he's trying to create a communication for us that helps us to understand something limitless and infinite and beautiful, but even our language is broken. So it's almost as though he can't just say it outright or accurately in a way that registers. It's quite a challenge trying to listen to and understand Jesus, isn't it? It's not a simple thing. Well, I begin to consider the way that I relate to my own son, Wesley. He's five years old. And I think about the way that my dad related to me when I was a boy. God gives parents, if, you have, if you're parents in this room, you've raised children, you know that that is a brutally difficult task. It requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice. It's very hard. At the same time, though, there are some unique benefits. And one of them is you get to always sort of see this question. I'm always faced with this question when I look at my children, whom I am trying to train in the ways of God, okay? I, I try to say something to them, and they just don't listen. And then I say it a thousand times in a row, and they feel like they're not even listening. They're listening less now. And I say to myself, my goodness, does God feel the way that I feel when he's trying to talk to me, you know? And if so, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'll pay better attention, you know? But it is this sense of I get to see the difficulty in having something register with Wesley, my boy. I think God has a difficult time getting through to me. My life would speak to that. I'll tell you a little story here to sort of set it up, and then we'll get right into the text. I grew up in Wisconsin, small town, uh, about 8,000 people, lived in a little gray house on Chestnut Street. And I had developed this pattern by about seven years old where after I was tucked in and we had gone to bed, I'd wait 10, 15 minutes and then start crying quietly, then more loudly, and then loud enough to get one more hug or one more story or one more nighttime song. Well, that was cute maybe at first and then very annoying and then it brought promises. My parents started promising, we love you, it's okay, you can be in bed alone. <laughs> okay. Then threats, you do it again, you're in trouble. Cut the crap, you know. And then, and then straight up discipline, so then I'm getting spankings, but I, I'm listening I, I, or I'm hearing what they're saying, but it's not registering until one evening, my dad takes me across the street to the Fox River, and we go fishing, and he tells me the fable of the boy who cried wolf. Now, all the times that he's tried to talk to me, I hear him in some way. It's effective in some way, but nothing clicked like that fable. And he tells me the story, especially when the boy gets eaten by the wolf. You know, little kid is really paying attention to that. Good grief, you know. And then he explains the meaning to me. And that story, outside of anything else, got me to really lock in and focus on him. Just, I think because it's maybe an innate human thing, just the desire, the, the love of stories. I don't know, something like that. But the story of the boy who cried wolf has a truth to it that is not overtly proclaimed. There's a truth in it that's hidden. My dad didn't just yet again say, stop crying at night or stop lying. That's really the issue, isn't it? I'm pretending like I have a problem when I don't. So there was this sense of grabbing my attention, burying the truth inside of this story, 
and then forcing me to pay attention to him. It was really interesting. What changed it all, and it was after he told me that I could literally take you to the plot of land I was sitting on when that story registered in my heart and mind, and I changed. I stopped crying at night after that. And, and it was so impactful, and you think, well, what was the difference? All the other things that they had done, and I think the difference was I attentively listened to what my dad was saying, and in doing so, I was changed in my thinking and in my action. But he caused me to attentively listen, and I attentively listened. That's an interesting juxtaposition. And he caused me to listen by hiding a truth inside of a story, and it helped much of the other things he had previously spoken to me through promises, through threats, through discipline. All of those things kind of clicked into place at that moment. Well, I say this story because I think that God is doing something, I'm not going to say the same, but similar when he uses parables to teach. I think he's doing something similar and something much, much greater. So similar in this way. He does something similar in that he hides the truth in order to reveal it, in order for it to register in a place in our heart and soul that's different than just hearing and going about life as usual. So I think that he hides the truth in order to reveal it. He will purposefully conceal the truth so we don't understand it easily and up front right away. But the very hiddenness the mystery of it draws us in, draws us in to wonder, to consider it, so that he could actually reveal the secret. So in that sense, I think God is going to do something similar with the parable. Here's where it's very different. The fable, the boy who cried wolf, that teaches a very basic kind of two-dimensional moral platitude. Just don't lie is, is kind of the gist of it. Don't be a liar lest you lose everything, you know, something like that. So I think, I think that's sometimes how we wrongly see parables. Well, these are just cute stories about heavenly truths in earthly uh, images, but that's not it. Parables are different. They're more than just a fable that teaches a moral platitude. He's teaching us about something deeply complex. He's not merely communicating something simplistic. He's working within the crippling limits of human language and reason to communicate something very complex, that mystery of the kingdom of God. He's preaching with authority. We've seen this already in the first three chapters of Mark. And he preaches in this unexpected way, hiding the truth in order to reveal it to us. That just grabs our attention, doesn't it? it grabs my attention. What are you hiding? What's the mystery? What's the secret? We'll see the disciples saying the same question. What are you talking about? Not just the disciples, people around as they listen to Jesus. What, are you, what do you mean? What are you saying? So I want to read this together. We'll be in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is with the disciples. And, and we kind of sit in the sandals of the disciples as well, if you will. I want to, I want to be there with them hearing Jesus preach this text, or sorry, not preach this text. We're reading the text of what he preaches. Notice too, so far we know from Mark 1 through 3 that Jesus is preaching and he's teaching. He's traveling around and doing this, but we haven't yet seen a lot of content. We know he's doing the preaching, but we haven't yet seen what he's preaching until today. 
This would be the, the first sort of long recording of an actual teaching of Jesus, okay? Mark 4, verse 1. Once again, once again, this has happened before. Jesus is doing this. Jesus began teaching by the lakeshore. And a very large crowd soon gathered around him, and so he got into a boat. Now, previously, he's gotten into a boat to escape the crowds. Here, he gets into a boat. He takes the posture of a teacher in his day, which would be sitting down, and he goes out a little bit from the shore. It's kind of like a floating pulpit, if you will, that he sits at. And that's hopefully what we're going to do with the extra money that we got. We're going to make water here, and I'm going to float in a boat and preach. That'll be cool. I'm just kidding. All right. He gets in a boat, and they sat in the boat while all the people remained on the shore. And then he taught them by telling them stories in the form of parables, such as this one. I'll pause there for a second. Notice that he's teaching them using parables, and Mark implies many parables. He could have recorded many more. We will study a few more in the next few Sundays. But this is the one out of those that Mark chooses to give to us. He seems to suggest that this is a good one for us to see what Jesus is doing. It kind of captures it. And then I want you to pay attention as we move into verse 3. The opening verb there, akuo, is listen. He says it in a way that's emphatic and imperative. Listen. You guys, listen. Okay? Listen, he says, verse 3. A sower or a farmer went out to sow or to plant the seeds, okay? And as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path, and the birds came, and they devoured it. That's a bummer. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. It sprang up at once because the soil was not deep. When the sun came up, though, it was scorched, and because it did not have sufficient root, it withered. Verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns, and they grew up, and they choked it out, and it did not produce any grain. But, verse 8, but other seed fell on the good soil and produced grain, sprouting and growing, and some yielded 30 times as much, some 60, and some 100 times as much. And then he said... Whoever has ears to hear, better listen. Pause for a second and notice. Jesus' parable, as Mark has recorded it, is what we might call an inclusio. It's this idea, as you're reading the Bible, pay close attention to repeated words or ideas or phrases. You go to Hebrews chapter 1, see a great inclusio. You see a, you see a phrase, you see a word, and then you read a little bit and you see the same idea again. The author wants you to know that this unit of thought is the main point has to do with those beginning and closing sort of bookend words. Listen, listen, listen. So what he's talking about in this parable has much to do with attentive listening, hearing or attentiveness to Jesus. And then we wonder, well, is this really a parable of the sower? That's what my Bible's sort of headline is. Or is it more of a parable about the, the seed? Or is it more of a parable about perhaps the soil? There's a lot going on here. You notice how the sower is the same in all the scenarios. 
And the seed is the same in all the scenarios, same sower, throwing the same seed. What changes is the soil. That's the only thing that changes. It seems to suggest that God stays the same. His word stays the same. But it goes out to different types of soil. And whether or not the person actually receives this word or seed has much to do with what kind of person he or she is. Is he hard-hearted, where it just sort of bounces and never registers? Soft-hearted, where it takes root, I'm super pumped, and then I'm just as pumped about something else and don't care anymore? Is it something that comes in and it does take root, but there's a lot of distraction, and so it's shrouded and clouded and nothing ever really grows? Or is there an attentiveness in which it can significantly be received and then grow? So I think right there we hit our meaning, if we would see it as meaning level one. I want to do three levels of meaning in this, par- in this parable. But there's kind of the low-hanging fruit. That's a, a good, easy sort of understanding right off the bat. We see Jesus, through this story, teaching the disciples something about how this good news, this word of God, gets received. Now, why would Jesus be doing this? We kind of step back in the story a little bit, and we remember Jesus has come, and he said, it is to preach. This is why I have come. Preach what? To preach the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand, okay? And this is the euangelion. This is the good news. Good news for who? Good news for the world. We're just at Christmas, you know? He gave us great news, good news for all mankind. And if you're one of his disciples, you're watching the religious leaders of the day reject Jesus, and you're like, is this really good news? Because the official guys don't seem to think so. They're pretty irritated. And then this good news, which is supposedly good for everybody, draws crowds, but not really for the good news, for something else. If you're a disciple, you've got to be saying to yourself, If this is truly good news for all mankind, then why are the vast majority of people not receiving it that way? And Jesus, I think, through this parable, right at the base level meaning, suggests, yeah, there will be many different ways that people receive this. And so he's not shocked. He's not upset. He doesn't share in the confusion of the disciples, and instead he teaches them, this is how it works. And he will quote from Isaiah to suggest this is kind of how it always has worked. So he brings before them, they're looking at Jesus, and he looks to them like a total paradox. He looks to them like a contradiction. He brings good news for everybody, and they don't think it's very good of news. (laughs) You know, how is this the case? And Jesus is trying to help them, I think. He does not instantly reveal himself with clarity, does he? It's like he's there right in front of us. He's right in front of us. We can see him. And yet in so many ways, he remains hidden to us. Like he seems somehow to draw us in very slowly and carefully in a way that actually changes us. Jesus is interesting, isn't he? When you're very attentive to him. When you're listening, the controversy 
that surrounds Jesus then still surrounds us today and it grabs our attention and it causes us to say, who really is this Jesus? I mean, for real. There's still today, 2,000 years later, tons of controversy. Was he a real man? What did he, did what he, what he said? Was it true? How is this the case? It doesn't seem like it's very good news to the majority of our world, does it? There's something about this parable then that's affirming, coming straight from Jesus. I look at that and I sometimes think, well, geez, the reason many, many people are not receiving the word of God it must be my fault. It must be the church's fault. It must, it's got, got to blame somebody, you know. I think we can read this parable and be like, this is sort of how it has always worked. But again, in the parable itself, as Mark has given it to us, a key factor is listening, attentiveness. I wouldn't doubt that the disciples grasped the basic gist of it at some level. But notice, they wanted to know more. They were seeking, if you will. They wanted to understand Jesus more. So out of the whole crowd that had gathered around the seashore, the disciples go up to Jesus after the parable. And the, and the story says that there were a small group of others in the audience who were also listening attentively. It doesn't say small group. It just says those who were around him. But they were listening attentively, and by doing so, they learned something important from Jesus, but it also caused them to want to know more. Anybody who's done any kind of educational process for real knows how that works. The more you learn, the more questions you get. The more you pursue something, the more it opens up and invites you to see different and new things. I think... That's what's happening with these disciples and some of the crowd. They hear Jesus' story. They kind of get the gist of it. All right, people receive it in different ways, but they want to know more. And so they gather around him, and that's where we'll pick it up again, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. So when he was alone, those around him who were with the 12 disciples, so we have a kind of a mixed crowd now, those around him with the 12 disciples, the apostles, they asked him about the parables. They asked him, hey, what are you talking about? And he said to them, well, the secret or the mysterion or the mystery, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything is in parables. What's the difference between the you he's talking to and those outside? All I can glean from this is it's the you are his disciples and those who came up to ask him a question. That's the group. So to you kinds of folks, this mystery has been revealed. And to those who are not my disciples or those who are coming to seek me, to those who are not, everything is in parables, which I think we can paraphrase to mean this doesn't make sense to those guys. And then he quotes from Isaiah, verse 12. Everything is in parables, so that although they look, they may look, but not see anything. And although they hear, they may hear, but not understand, so they might not repent and be forgiven. That kind of cuts deep. That challenges us. Verse 13, he said to them, don't you guys understand this parable? Then how will you understand any parable? And now, in these next verses, six of them here, 
He will interpret the parable for them. Look for those, those repeated words and ideas again with me. Verse 14, the sower, he says, the sower sows the word. And these, these are the ones on the path where the word is sown. So here's the guys, this is what I mean when I talk about the seed that falls on the path, okay? These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. Whenever they hear, immediately Satan comes and snatches the word that was sown in them. Notice they did hear. Whenever they hear, though, that seed didn't take root, Satan comes in and snatches it. And that's the end of that. Verse 16. Here, these are the ones that are sown on the rocky soil. As soon as they hear the word, they receive it with joy. They're stoked. Yeah. But they have no root in themselves and do not endure. And then when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones that are sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but worldly cares, the allure or the seductiveness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, and it produces nothing. Verse 20, but... These are the ones sown on good soil. They hear the word and receive it. Now that's different. They hear the word. All of them have heard the word so far. These ones, however, hear the word and receive it and bear fruit one thirty times as much, one sixty, and one one hundred. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? There you go. You might be a little bit shocked with those verses 11 and 12. I know that I am, and we have to come back to those. But here's what I would say. When I read that text we just did, there's a couple of surface-level things that sort of pop for me as I'm trying to wrestle through it. And I look at it, and I say two things. One is, it looks at first glance like Mark is saying to us that Jesus preaches in parables so that some people could never understand what he's preaching. It's just the quote from Isaiah suggests that. That's what it looks like. And I say, is that what Mark and is that what Jesus is saying here? So that's one question that comes up. The second is that it looks like fruitfulness has, has a lot to do with this mystery of the kingdom. Fruitfulness seems to be the focus in Jesus' interpretation. So in the parable itself, and that's where I want to start, because I think the deepest meaning, that's where we'll end, and that's with that 11 and 12 passage, okay? So first of all, fruitfulness. He gave us the parable, and in it, he opened it and closed it with the words, listen, listen. So we saw, okay, attentiveness and listening is a key here. Here he opens it, in this interpretation of the parable, he opens it with, the sower sows the word, and then you see throughout it, they hear the word, they hear the word, they hear the word, they hear the word. The sower sows and they hear. And then we're looking then at here's what happens. Each one hears, but what changes? Again, it's like the other one where everything is the same. Sower's the same, word's the same, and everybody hears, but what changes is the fruitfulness levels, okay? I think it's really interesting. Fruitfulness, if this truly is that Jesus, and Jesus says it is, it's, it's, he's revealing a secret of the kingdom of God or the secret of the kingdom of God. 
right off the bat, we might be challenged to think, hmm, this kingdom of God may not be as simple as just knowing who's getting saved and how. I'm going to take a little side note here. This isn't in our parable, but I think it's appropriate to suggest, as I have studied, submitted to learning the New Testament, I over and over and over again have come to realize that the central question of the New Testament is not, are you going to heaven or hell? I think the central question, at least so far as I can see it, the central question is, who do you think Jesus is? That is woven throughout all of the gospel narratives, throughout all of the teaching. Are heaven and hell part of the New Testament teaching? I think so. But I was trained to think that that was what all of the Bible was about. You know, where are you going when you die? And yet I see in the gospels like this, constantly this, who do you really think Jesus is really? Okay, so in the parable, we don't see seeds that merely live or die. That might move us more to thinking of heaven or hell or something like that. Instead, we see degrees of fruitfulness and failure. So look at it with me. We see these degrees. Negatively, we know that some are hard-hearted, and they hear this word, and it doesn't register, and it's quickly snatched up by Satan. Hence, no fruit. Nothing happens. Others receive it enthusiastically with open arms, but they are just as quick to reject it as they were to receive it, and hence, no fruit. Nothing happens. Some, this is the most interesting of all of them, the third seed. That one seems to register, it seems to germinate, and it seems to grow into a plant. And yet, no fruit. Nothing happens. Okay, so there's different ways that it is negatively uh, impacted. But there's no fruit. So those are the three degrees of failure. And then you saw that big contrasting word, but, and then he gives three degrees of success. Positively, some will take root and bear either lots of fruit, tons of fruit, or supernatural, miraculous amounts of fruit. Notice that if you had seed that would yield just 10 times the amount that you put down, that would be considered a bumper crop. I mean, that would be fantastic. So to have 30 times the amount is borderline unheard of. Then you get into 60 and 100 times, and clearly Jesus is saying, and any, anybody in his context would listen to that and be like, what? You know, that's, that's crazy town. So he's trying to say there are different ways that this is not fruitful at all, or it is... It is very fruitful, super fruitful, or super duper extra fruitful, okay? I think God is going to have something maybe unexpected to say to the Christian who was one of those who heard the word of God and maybe even prayed to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, which unfortunately these days means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And yet their lives never bore any fruit. I don't know about you, but this emphasis on growing into fruitfulness kind of shocks me. That's not how I was trained. But the parable, it, it puzzles me as much as it enlightens me. It challenges me. It shocks me. 
and it pushes me to move beyond that entry-level question of, am I saved, to a parallel but even better question, which is, am I fruitful? Am I fruitful? Maybe beyond that, is there even such a thing as a fruitless Christian that is truly a Christian? Is that a possible reality? I was not raised to be concerned with fruitfulness at all. It was all just about how to get saved. So I, I would just blow right through this kind of text and thinking about it in those terms. Now, if you're like me, you're kind of wondering, well, what does he mean by fruitful? And unfortunately, the parable doesn't tell us. It just says there's fruitfulness and there's, not, and there's lack thereof. But I think you can answer that question at least a little bit in a preliminary way by looking ahead or more broadly to the New Testament, just at the way that the New Testament talks about somebody, a person, whose, whose life has been overwhelmed by Jesus. Somebody in whom the life of Jesus has truly taken root. The New Testament talks about the characteristics of this kind of person and even uses fruit language, fruits of the Spirit, effectiveness in the gospel, that kind of language. And it suggests things like people who are becoming fruitful in Christ are always becoming more patient and more kind and more loving, more self-controlled, more forgiving, more persevering. Don't give up all the time on God or others. More faithful to others and to God. People who are courageous, becoming that way. Who are becoming ever more honest. Becoming more gracious toward one another. Merciful. More deeply trusting in God. More filled with love and worship for God. These are the kinds of things I think that we would look to and say, is Christ really growing and living within my life? Am I in his life? So that's the language we like to use around here. Entering into Jesus' life. The parable doesn't give us precise terms for being fruitful. It avoids clarity, doesn't it? Which causes us to wonder, what do you mean? And I think it almost, this is my own take on it, I think it almost acknowledges the fact that if we have to ask whether we qualify, have I done enough to be considered fruitful? We're already on the wrong track. I think that shocks us at that level. If we're kind of saying, well, what's the rule? What's the measure? Am I technically fruitful? Jesus is trying to draw us back to a previous question, which is, are you even listening to me? This next bit here now is really important. Because I know there's something happening in many of our souls and hearts right now. Right when we might be tempted to think something like, oh, geez, I'm really not as fruitful as I should be or as I could be. I better work really, really hard to get more fruitful in my Christianity. We need to remember to listen to Jesus and listen to this parable. It's all about receiving, isn't it? Receiving the word that God sows. So this parable does not read like a finger-wagging, shame on you, bad Christians can now feel more guilty. It's not trying to do that. This is much more than a moral platitude that says, be nicer or get out there and evangelize more. It's a parable that challenges me, challenges us to wonder, how have I received the word of God? 
Have I received it? It will grow and become very fruitful when it's truly received. I think the parable says that. When it is not rejected by a hard heart and thwarted by Satan. When it's not traded for looking good or feeling good in the midst of life's troubles or in a critical culture. And when it's not halfsies or halfway received in a way where it's just kind of part of a well-rounded life, but I'm actually a lot more interested in other things. In that sense, it's not going to grow, and it won't bear fruit. But it will grow and become very fruitful when it takes root in good soil. It will take root and either bear lots of fruit, tons of fruit, or supernatural, miraculous amounts of fruit. So if I do not recognize significant fruitfulness in my life, in my Christian walk, sorry, in my Christian walk, if I don't recognize it, the goal of the parable is not to make me come down on myself and feel all shameful. It's causing me to say, have I really seen and heard this Jesus? Who do I really think he is? Really, who do I think he is? Have I given careful attention to the fullness of the true Jesus revealed in the Bible? Or have I given a nod to he gets me into heaven and, and now we're good? Am I paying attention to him and listening to him? We live in an age where more people than ever have access to the Bible and fewer people than ever are reading it or listening to it. Unfortunately, I talk to so many Christians who will quickly proclaim, yeah, I, I like Jesus, more or less. And yeah, you know, he is, he is somewhat important in my life, for sure. You know, he's got a seat at the table. But their life is hollow. And he's not really important enough to carefully listen to or devote real time and attentiveness to and so they recognize a certain sense of ongoing fruitlessness in their life. And I think C.S. Lewis's very familiar quote is appropriate at this point. You might remember he, the famous statement he had. He said, Christianity, if it is true, is of the utmost importance. And if it is false, it's of no importance whatsoever. But what Christianity can never be is moderately important. I find that most folks who deeply love Jesus, however old they are and however long they've been walking with him, they generally say, I still have so much to learn from him. I have so many questions that I want to ask. There's the, those are the folks who are with the disciple, our disciples themselves, gathered around Jesus asking questions. On the other hand, most folks who just like Jesus, that get along with him, he's cool with me, whatever, where Christianity is moderately important, just kind of part of a well-rounded life, these ones are the folks I've run into, and they're the ones who are far more prone to say, yeah, I get it. I know all I need to know. I've got the truth. We're good. And the Bibles can gather dust. Further listening is not important. I think these are not the folks that are in the crowd. They're not seeking first the kingdom of God. They're not looking and asking and wondering and giving attention to Jesus 
It's attention to other things because we've kind of got that part wrapped up. But I think Jesus himself is not so easy to get to know. He operates in a world that is totally unreasonable to us. His values and his actions and instructions do not make a lot of sense right up front. The truth of who he is remains hidden in a paradox. The all-powerful, glorious God as a weak and brutally shamed and killed human. Now, that, that's a paradox, isn't it? That is a parable. In this way, I think Jesus is both a stumbling block like a confusing parable, as well as a bright light in a dark place, one who comes in not to keep us in the dark, one who comes in hidden in order that he could be revealed. You might say, well, pastor, that's nice, but you've got to read verses 11 and 12, okay? Because there he, he clearly says why he speaks in parables. I think Mark is going to get a little Optimus Prime on us here, okay? There's a little bit more than meets the eye. Read this with me again. We've read it before, but here we go. Jesus is going to quote from Isaiah 6. We read Mark 4, verse 10. Here he is. He's alone. Those around him with the 12 are asking him about the parables, and here's verse 11. He says, listen, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything is in parables. So that although they look, they may look, but not see. And although they hear, they may hear, but not understand, so that they may not repent and be forgiven. At the surface, it looks like Jesus is saying that the purpose of the parables is to help the in crowd and to confuse those outside. I think that's actually true. The question we're sort of asking is to confuse them permanently? It seems to suggest that Jesus wants to keep the deeper meaning hidden from them permanently. But then at the end of the same chapter, we always want to read these texts in the context of our author. At the end of chapter 4, we pick up two verses that don't seem to fit well with verses 11 and 12. So look at verses 33 and 34. This is after he gives several parables. We're going to study them together. But then he says this. He says, so with many parables like these, he spoke the word to them. This is how he preached the word. As they were able to hear. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately, he explained everything to his own disciples. I think there's some tension there between verses 11 and 12 and verses 33 and 34. The Isaiah quote suggests that the purpose is to keep the secret secret or hidden permanently, whereas 33 and 34 suggest that the parables work as instruments of communication that Jesus uses to communicate to people at their understanding level or as they were able to hear. So is Mark giving an outright contradiction here? I don't think that he is. And here's, and here's why. It'll be these closing four verses. This next part, I think, really demands our full attention. So pay close attention, and let's read this slowly and carefully. I want to read Mark 4, verses 21 through 25. And we'll start with the first three. And what I want to pay attention to here is we can't just extract this 
and, you know, make a song, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. We need to actually see that Jesus is using what he says here to answer the questions that the disciples and those who are asking questions asked him. And they're wondering, what in the world do you mean? What's going on? And he has answered them already by interpreting the parable. And now, verse 21, he also said to them, a lamp does not come in to be put under a basket or under a bed, does it? Isn't it to be placed on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except in order to be revealed. There he gives us a purpose statement. Nothing is hidden except for the purpose of being revealed, and nothing is concealed except in order to be brought to light. If anybody has ears to hear, listen. Okay, there's the akuo again. Listen. Listen to what I'm saying. In those first three sentences, I want you to notice that Jesus is talking about himself as the lamp. I think that because of the verb that he uses. Many of our translations, I want to be really careful here, many of our translations will say a lamp is not brought in, and that captures the idea, that's not false, it's good, but Mark actually uses an active verb there, and he says a lamp does not come in. There's an active thing that's moving in. I think they avoid that translation because we don't want to, you know, see like a beauty and the beast sort of walking, talking candlestick or something, okay? But Jesus is the lamp who comes in for a purpose, and he says it's to shed light on the scene. A lamp doesn't come in to keep secrets hidden. A lamp doesn't come in to be put underneath a bed. You put it up on a lampstand to shine. Clearly, though he is hidden from people's understanding, he is unable to be seen or heard from this world's perspective. He comes in for a purpose, which is to reveal. So one who wants to hear him, to really listen to him, needs to be open to a very different way of thinking and living. If you go to the Isaiah passage, or the parable, or to Jesus himself, while still firmly grasping onto ideas and concepts and values that you picked up along the way, you're naturally going to not get him. He's inviting us to come to him with an openness an open-mindedness, an open-heartedness. If you open your mind like a receptive soil, open to something new, growing within it, your ability to interpret Jesus and his word will greatly expand. And he says this, I think, in the next two verses. 4.24. He said to them, take care about what you hear. Okay, he's talking about what you're hearing, what you're receiving. The measure that you use will be the measure you receive, and the more will be added to you. For whoever has will be given more, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Well, that's, that's easy, yeah? Let's just wrap it up there. <laughs> I don't really get that. So I have to think about it in the context. He's talking about revelation. He's talking about him being a light. He's talking about interpreting what we receive. Let me paraphrase how I would interpret this passage. Take care about what you hear. This is what he's saying. Pay close attention to what you hear because if you are measuring generously in your interpretation of the word, still more reward will follow. 
But if you're a stingy hearer who sticks only to the literal, surface-level sense of a passage, then the way you read the gospel and the way that you read the Old Testament, the way you read Jesus, it's only going to offer you diminishing returns which lead finally to nothing but a biblically and spiritually parched life. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. Mark is trying to open our heads a little bit to how we interpret Jesus and and the parables and even the Old Testament itself. And he's suggesting, look, if you come with your reason and your values and all of your logic locked in place and you say, hey, does this fit with me? It's probably not going to ever register. But if you come with an openness to Jesus and you say, teacher, teach me. I'm listening. Something very different happens with the Word of God. You don't come to the text or to Jesus or to the Gospels or to the parables saying, yeah, I got this, no problem. You come to it and you say, I am here to learn from you. So I'd ask you, do you ever feel like the real true Jesus is hidden from you? And if you do, know that this has sort of told us that's pretty normal. The parable itself, but also the way the disciples react. These are guys who are walking, talking, literally witnessing miracles, and they say, who are you, man? What are you about? <laughs> you know, we're 2,000 years after the fact reading it out of a page and, and we're confused. That makes sense. You're confused. That's okay. Jesus is that way on purpose to draw us in, to change us, to reveal who he is. Mark has challenged us to see that this confusion we have in him does not have to be an ongoing problem until we get to the grave. And unfortunately, many have resolved to that. Well, he's weird, whatever, it'll all make sense in heaven, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And Jesus isn't saying that to us. He isn't saying, hey, I just want to assure you in your own particular chosen path of life and make you feel great. He's saying, I want to shock you out of the frog in the kettle scenario that this world is. I want to reveal a truth to you, and I've proclaimed it, and I've made promises, and I've made threats, and I've disciplined, and here we are now, and I am actually going to speak in a ridiculously weird story that has the hidden meaning and draw you in to pay attention and listen. Am I listening to Jesus? He hides this truth in order that it would be revealed. The thing that changes everything seems to be attentively listening or seeking the kingdom of God really seeking it. Jesus himself causes us to choose to listen to him by using this paradoxical veiled communication. He draws us in. Richard B. Hayes is a good New Testament scholar. He writes that this secret of the kingdom is so huge that it would be crass or even false to just blurt it out. Its right expression, Hayes says, uh, must be concealed in figures and riddles and whispers. Rowan Williams, he looks to this tendency that God has hiding to reveal, and he says this, throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus holds back from revealing who he is because it seems 
He cannot believe that there are words that will tell the truth about him in the mouths of others. What will be said of him is bound to be untrue. That he is the master of all circumstances. That he can heal wherever he wills. That he is the expected triumphant deliverer, the anointed one. There is a kind of truth when it is said that becomes untrue. Remember, the world that Mark depicts is not a reasonable one. It is full of demons and suffering and abused power. How in such a world could there be a language in which it could be truly said who Jesus is? And I think if Mark could answer that question, he would say that there is such a language in the life of Jesus. To understand it, one must listen attentively to receive the word of God, the Logos himself, the stories and symbols of Israel's sacred scriptures that we now read alongside the stories of Jesus. We begin to see the hidden truth of who he is by listening to these stories. And this is how we share the gospel as well, not merely with are you going to heaven or hell, but have you ever met Jesus. Let me tell you about this man. This Jesus who has the authority to forgive sins, to still storms, to walk on the sea, to feed scattered sheep as the true shepherd, to heal the blind and the lame, and to make the deaf hear and the mute speak. We watch an infinitely beautiful, intensely powerful unrealistically just. God is so just. We watch this God in the crusted blood and the torn flesh and the rotting body of a human being. The unclean flesh of humankind gets slaughtered as a worthless and ugly criminal. And that is our God. Talk about a parable. Talk about a secret so huge and a truth so big that it looks from the perspectives and values of our world to be a totally incoherent paradox. It makes no sense. But only to those who are ignoring, rejecting, perishing. To those who are listening, the parables of the kingdom and Jesus himself will become a paradoxical, veiled communication an attention-grabbing way of communicating that God uses to hide the truth in order to reveal it to us more fully as time wears on. So Jesus' words, Mark's gospel, these challenge us, they shock us, and most importantly, they draw us closer, working to help us pay attention, give our attention to him to become different, like Christ, fruitful, in our Christianity, and our life in God's kingdom. Those who have ears to hear will hear. Let's pray. Father, it's great to be back together worshiping you and learning from your word. We are thankful for the gospels. We're thankful for your good news. We recognize that as you spread it throughout the world, it doesn't often take it's often rejected or ignored, even despised. And yet you do cause many of us to be attentive to you, 
and to listen. So my prayer for our whole body of believers here, God, is that as we set out in this new year, we would commit to being totally attentive to you, that our attention to you would be much more fixated than anything else, that we would really, truly seek you and your kingdom. And Jesus, we learn from your word that when we do, you meet us in that spot and you pick us up and you teach us and you bring us closer to you. Thank you. We are in awe by you, and our words don't capture the truth of who you are. So continue, please, to be merciful toward us as we trust you with our lives. Amen.